So we're going to continue in the series that we've been working on in Titus. Church is not what you think. And uh, so we're going to do a little different aspect of it today because we're moving on in the text. We'll be in Titus chapter 3. And we're going to look at God's family expectations. What does God expect of us? What does he want us to do? I'll be in chapter 3. There's a, a Bible there under your pew. You can pull that out. Uh, just in terms of what happens in families. I don't know what your family was like. Uh, we, we explored this with Joseph's family in terms of there is family dysfunction present in our society. Uh, all of us have probably experienced a little bit of that. And there are expectations in every family, and mine was no different. And so when I think back on my family, I think, what were the expectations? What were the things that they didn't say? Maybe they did say them, but I just didn't hear it. But now I look back and go, okay, I think one of the things that was expected was don't embarrass us. <laughs> don't talk about our money. Don't talk about our religion and don't talk about our politics. I think those were things that weren't necessarily voiced, uh, but they led us to have a family where we had lots of shallow conversations, uh, but we really didn't talk about some important stuff. And there's another family that's been in the news recently. It's the royal family. For some reason, we are enamored with the royal family. I don't know why. They're just people, sort of. <laughs> and what happened was uh, Prince Harry and Meghan decided that the expectations of the royal family didn't suit them. Uh, and I don't know if you knew this. Maybe you've read some of these articles. But I found out in reading one of these articles that you know, you can't even go talk to other people in the royal family without making an appointment, even though you're part of the royal family. This is not a casual relationship in this family. And furthermore, what you do talk about, I think there's some direction that you're given that says, these are things you can't talk about and these are things you can't talk about. And when you go outside and talk to other people, we have a person who's going to tell you, this is what you can say and what you can't say. So they have all kinds of strict interpretations of uh, what that ought to look like. So anyway, they want to move out on their own, get some distance from all that tradition and try and live independently. I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know if it's good or bad, but, but that's an example of another family. All of our families have expectations, right? They always want us to be a certain way. And when we don't meet those expectations, there's drama, I suppose, uh, but we're in a new family now. If we're members of Christ, if we're in Christ, then we're in a family called God's family. We are his church, and he has established expectations for our behavior and the way we treat other people. The good news is God is the one that also enables us to do what he asks us to do. In the past few weeks, we've heard from Dave teach us about what leadership should function like in the church. Uh, then we went on to talk about how the generations, young and old, ought to act and how to, they ought to operate within the church. And then finally, last week, you looked at how grace empowers us to be people who are dealing with supervisors well, and also that grace is the thing that changes our lives, our mission, changes us. Uh, so this week, we're going to look at a little different aspect in Titus 3. It's really... How do we deal with authorities, with government, with rulers? What do we do with them? We are told, just as an overview, we're told to show them all perfect courtesy. Uh, if that doesn't make you squirm a little bit, let me know. Uh, 
<laughs> so there's a pew Bible in front of you. To, if you don't have one with you, you're welcome to take that with you. But it's on page about 998 if you're looking for Titus 3. Let me read this to you. Remind them. Uh, he's really talking to all of us. Uh, he was talking to the Cretans. Uh, and now to remind you, the Cretans were, honestly, when I think about them, I think they're pretty much like our society. They were really independent people. If they were thieves and pirates, you know, they were entrepreneurs of a sort, right? They're gonna, they're gonna, they were working out their own living and stuff. And, uh, and they came under Roman rule. And when they came under Roman rule, they didn't stop being people who didn't want other people to tell them what to do. And so that's why Paul is saying, remind them, much like us as us individualists, us Americans who are saying, I can do whatever I like. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I need to ask God to help us understand this. Pray with me. God, you are our Savior. You are our Lord. You have given us your word. Uh, sometimes we have difficulty putting it into effect in our lives. Help us, God, to hear today how you can enable us to do that. Help us, God, to hear clearly from you in spite of how I might stumble. Uh, we pray, God, that uh, you would use what I do to help people grow in Christ and be transformed by your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. So, I guess the first question is, what's expected? What does God want? It's interesting because this is addressed several times in the New Testament. Paul writes about it in Romans 13, and Peter also writes about it in 1 Peter. So if you want to get a fuller explanation, uh, go and read those passages later on. I'm sure if you're in small groups, they'll probably address some of that. Um, you know, we have a general distrust for authority in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, in yourself or in other people. Uh, we don't like it when they tell us what to do. We don't like it that there are people that we don't like their personality, perhaps, or the way they act, and yet they govern us. Uh, but in general, as Americans, we just don't like this thing I'm going to call the S word, submissive, that first phrase, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, if you're in the military, uh, you have learned that there is a command structure and this is the way you operate, and this is how you treat people above and below you. And, you know, so you've been trained in that for quite some time, if you've been there for a while. Uh, but this is kind of what we think of submissiveness. We think it's just rolling over 
and you know, showing our belly and saying, I give up, you do whatever you want to do. And uh, that is not the submissiveness we're talking about. Uh, we want to see it in a much broader context. You know, what is God actually saying when he says to be submissive? Well, here's, here's one verse that might help with that. In Romans 13.1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever risks the authorities or resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Yeah, that's pretty scary because we don't look at those authorities over us as being put in place by God for his purposes. The bigger picture is that God put them there. We're supposed to not rebel against those authorities. And when we do, we're shaking our fist at God and saying, I don't like what you're doing. Being submissive. <laughs> I know we don't like the word. It actually means we're acknowledging God's sovereignty, right? We're saying, God, you're in charge, and you care for me, and what you are doing is good. And we're not aligning ourselves necessarily with those people who are in authority. We're aligning ourselves with God's will. God established that government for good. Government is supposed to be here to take care of us. It's to keep the bad in check. Of course, there's going to be times when government is in opposition to God, when it's contrary to God's word. And Paul is not saying that you should not oppose government that is contrary to God's will. A couple of examples you might look at. Go look at the first chapter of Daniel and just see the situation Daniel was put into where he is under the authority of a hostile government who captured him and took him to their country and says, now you're going to live like we do. And Daniel says, I don't think that's going to go well because I don't want to dishonor God by doing things the way you do them. So how about if I do this? Daniel figured out a way, an alternative with great courtesy to ask his captors if he could do something and he showed that he could act with courtesy towards a hostile government and still be what God wanted him to be. Or how about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? They're out preaching about Jesus and the people, the rulers of the temple sent out their guards to arrest them, brought them in, dragged them in and said, we don't want you doing this, so stop doing it. And Peter and John's answer was, this is what God wants us to do, so we can't stop doing it. Uh, they, weren't being, they weren't being the kind of people that got in your face and got really harsh and argued with them. They were just saying, this is what God wants us to do, so we can't stop doing it. Then they went back to their folks and praised God for what had happened and prayed so that they would be bold to keep on doing what they were supposed to be doing that God had told them to do. So in, fa- in the face of a hostile uh, ruler and authority, they were doing a different tactic to keep on doing what God wanted them to do. Every situation is different. We're all going to be challenged at some point with something that's going on, and we're going to find that, you know, we are at odds with the people who are in authority. Uh, But God is the one who enables us, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, to show perfect courtesy to them uh, and to deal with government the way God intends us to. Uh, because he put it there to keep our society from falling into chaos. 
The other side of this, we go to one extreme, we could put our trust in government. Uh, we have a, remember, we are the top 2% of the world in terms of wealth. And so we live pretty comfortable lives. And one of the things we care about most is not losing our comfortable lives. And so it's easy to put trust in people who are governing and say, if we would just get the right people in here, all this would be fixed. Uh, you can read any of history and you're going to find out that's not true. It doesn't matter who we put in there. We are all, uh, we're all dealing with a sin issue and there's never been a perfect government. There will be one day when God takes over again. Uh, but that is idolatry for us to trust in them and not trust in the God who put them there. So there's a means to a greater end here. Being submissive to authority and to rulers over us is really, that means, uh, understanding that God put them there helps us do that. And we don't want to oppose God, so we're going to do what he asks us to do. Uh, we are submissive to them so that God's plan to reveal himself to the world will have a stage from which to be heard. Does that make sense? We're establishing a platform. If we're showing perfect courtesy to all people, they are seeing Christ in us. They are seeing God at work, and hopefully that will result in them being more open to the gospel. It's an act of love. I know that sounds weird. Submission is an act of love. We're taking the love that God has shown to us and we're showing it to other people. Another way to think of it is we're kind of opening a window, right? We are saying, God's in control, therefore I can do these things, and therefore I can show love to people, and that opens a window, opens a window of opportunity for the gospel to be heard. It's clearly seen in First uh, Peter 2.13 where, where Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I don't know about you, but I don't use the word sake much. But, and so I have trouble. I just think, what does that mean? For the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. Okay, here's one way to look at it. We submit to the authorities because we want to give an advantage for the Lord to be heard. We're giving him an advantage that he didn't have if we didn't act correctly. And it's the good news of Jesus that we want to go out. So our walk, you know, we claim to be a believer, we claim to be following Christ, ought to match our talk. What we do should match what we say we are. And the people that were over us, the authorities, those rulers, they ought to be able to say, oh, I see you're one of those people that follows Jesus. Uh, it'd be great if they noticed that. It'd be wonderful. I mean, they may hate that, but... You're doing Jesus' work in doing that. You're showing them that there is a difference in you. Let's look at verse 2 for a second because he, he expends the, the relationship here. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I think that kind of, that towards all people says, okay, this one phrase encapsulates everything we're talking about. Uh, we're supposed to be the rebels who fight against all those evil spoken against other people in our world right now. All those Facebook fights, all those harsh confrontations, all the in-your-face stuff that goes on. We're supposed to be kind and gentle. We're supposed to be the ones saying, you know what, uh, I don't understand. I don't know if I share that with you, but help me understand what's going on. 
We're to be obedient. That means law-abiding. We're to be ready for every good work. That means we're looking for ways to benefit people in the name of Jesus. We're not to speak evil of people, to slander them or defame them. It's kind of name-calling, right? We're to avoid quarreling. It really means to be without contention, to be peaceful, to be gentle, And finally, that phrase, to show perfect courtesy to all people. When we show every consideration, that's another way of saying it, to all people, we're imitating God's kindness. That's the kindness God showed to us. We're fulfilling our mission. And then, of course, the next question comes up is, what is our mission? Here's what Paul says our mission is in Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Did you ever think of repentance as a gift? Something that was given to you? That's what it is. That's what it says right here. God may grant them repentance. Repentance is not something that we were so smart that we figured out. Repentance is something that God's love brought us to and gave it to us. So here's, here's an application for this. Uh, you might be asking yourself, who are some people, some people I could name, that I'm really having difficulty showing all courtesy to, perfect courtesy to them? <clears throat> See, we become the conduit of God's kindness to other people. We're the, we're the way it's going to get to them. But what enables us to do that? In the next section, Paul helps us understand why we can do these things. Uh, So here's what he says in the second part of this. For we ourselves. Did you notice it changed from remind them to to we? We'll, We'll look at that in a second. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So Paul has changed it and included himself with us in this whole thing. For we... So what do you think of Paul? You know, I don't know how much you've studied Paul, uh, how much you know about him, but you probably know that he wrote a whole bunch of books. He wrote Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon. That's a lot of information he's given to us from God about how to live our lives. And so he would have a lot to brag about there. But here's what he tells us about himself, because there were some folks uh, who were uh, in a little argument with Paul. And he says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So the flesh, that's us. That's us in our own strength, right? He's saying, if, if you think you've got a reason to brag, I got bigger reasons to brag. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
I mean, that's, that's pretty big bragging, isn't it? <laughs> and, that, and yet he includes himself with us. By his heritage and his education and his performance, he was the best of the best among his contemporaries. He knew they couldn't get any better at bragging than he was. He was the best. Uh, but what does he say? We used to be like this. He saw that he needed a savior. And here's what he says all of us were like together. We were once foolish. Paul includes himself. The very brightest and most intelligent of us were once foolish. We didn't conform to things above. We weren't smart enough to avoid that. We were disobedient. We did not obey God's law. In fact, we rebelled against it. We were led astray. We were seduced into rebellion and against God's authority, and therefore God. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We indulged ourselves. We did whatever we wanted to do. We spent our time in malice and envy. We were comparing ourselves to everyone else, looking at what they had and saying, oh, they have more, I want it. We spent our time doing that. Then we hated others and were hating each other. You know, hating is, we think of hating as a really active thing where you do bad things to people. But uh, one way to look at hating, it is not caring. And this is biblical. It's just not caring about other people. You're not loving them because love is an action thing. Love is what we do for them. And when you withhold your love, you just say, I'm not doing anything for you. That's really hating people. All these attributes are ungodlike. But So how do we say no to ungodliness. How do we try harder? Do we try harder? <laughs> Should we do more religious stuff? Should we go to more small group meetings? Uh, where can we find the power to be changed? We could try and convince ourselves by uh, saying to ourselves stuff like this. Well, no, I won't do those things. I'll act right so people will admire me. Or you could say, no, if I don't act godly, people will reject me. Or our concern could be, I won't get blessings from God if I do that. Or maybe God would condemn me if I do this. Or I would hate myself if I did that. All those things you hear, all the motivations for those things are fear and pride. Because we are not looking towards God. We're looking at ourselves and going, what can I get from God? We're looking for esteem. We're looking for a relationship. We're looking for stuff. And our motivations are wrong because we see the power in us as being able to do that. We're just chasing our own desires. Here's how God prepares us to say no to ungodliness. And this is where we find the power to change. It's back in verse 4. Uh, that little word, but, only three letters, but there's this huge change between what we were and what God has now changed us too. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's God's grace in our lives. Mercy withholds what we deserve. We deserve to die for what we did. And God withheld that judgment. Grace gives us what we don't deserve, and that's salvation. That's why we can say no to our old self, right? We can say, you know, you died. 
That old self is done. I have a new identity in Christ. He saved me. I am changed. And because of that, we can be the people God wants us to be. When we believe that, we can say no to ungodliness. Because we can say, I'm not who I used to be. That's what I once was. I'm not that anymore. See, God wasn't so impressed with our morally upright lives, our church attendance, or our resume that he thought, wow, you're a really good person. I'd like to have you on my team. Uh, it's funny because we think that there's a way the game is played. Uh, and, and what we think is that there are rules, and if I obey the rules, then God has to accept me because I'm doing what he wants me to do. The problem is with that thinking, we're never able to meet God's family standards, his expectations, because we just can't. It, it really reminds me of this game that we uh, had to play at this one Air Force school that I went to, and it's called Flickerball. Any Air Force guys in here? Oh, too bad. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, okay, it's this Air Force school. And Flickerball, I think, uh, it was designed to torment and to, uh, and to make you have to really adapt to a bunch of rules that were counter to anything you had ever done in football or basketball or any of those sports. Okay, So it's play with a football. Imagine a goal that looks like a basketball goal. It's got a square hole in it through which you had to throw the football in order to score a goal. But the only way you can get the football from one end of the field to the other end of the field is to pass forward to guys down the field because you can only take three steps forward. Three. That's not many steps. And there's guys counting, I can tell you. <laughs> and you could run as many steps as you wanted to, sideways or backwards, and still throw the football. But you can only hold the football for five seconds. So in the midst of doing all this, you're, you're counting steps, you're counting seconds. You, you, you know, it's, okay, it was so messed up. It's not a contact sport, and so if you run into anybody, that's a penalty. So you're penalized if you take more than three steps forward with the ball. You're penalized if you go more, five sec more than five seconds with the ball, and you're penalized if you are uh, running into people. And so uh, I looked in the archives, and uh, I was in the penalty box the whole time for this game. I could, I could never. I found in the archives, it was actually a picture of me in the penalty box. No, actually, it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, so what's the point of this? The point is that God didn't create a game with a bunch of rules that were impossible to keep so that he could weed out all the bad players and find the people who could keep the rules. His rules simply show that we are incapable of staying out of the penalty box and we need a savior. We're all in the penalty box. We couldn't avoid being penalized because we all break the rules. Now, some people think, too, that church is kind of like uh, signing week, which I think happened last week in the high schools in Texas. I saw something on the news and thought, that's really interesting. So these colleges look at these players of various sports, and they assess them, and then they make an invitation to them to come to their college to join their team. That's not what becoming a part of the church is like, though. Uh, we're not drafted into God's team based on some assessment 
that we have to offer. We're dragged into God's family by the force of His love, which overwhelms our efforts to impress Him. Because we can't. And it reveals our orphan state. So He saves us, but what to? Well, we could say, well, I've, I've got my ticket now, so I can just go on living like I've been living and Jesus will come back, and then I'll use my ticket to get on the train to heaven. Uh, but that's not why God saved us. That's not what he saved us to. Remember this thing it's talked about in the, it talks about the appearing of God's goodness, and loving kindness. Uh, and it's, if you look back in Titus, you'll see that that appearing is mentioned in a couple other places as well. His appearance is going to keep on happening. And it's going to keep on happening through us. He saved us because he's a merciful God and a loving God. And Dave mentioned this verse a while back, and I just think it's worth talking about again. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. Did you catch that? He loves you because he loves you. His love is not a response that was generated by his seeing goodness in us. It's his being to love. So why can we be gentle, kind, showing perfect courtesy to all people? Because we were those broken people. All of us. We were in rebellion against God. He changed us by his grace. And through Jesus Christ, he took us out of the penalty box. He showed up and rescued us from our inability to conform to the rules. And we have this new identity in Christ. Uh, we're not striving for God's, God's acceptance. We already have it. We, we got the pleasure of going to an Andrew Peterson concert uh, last week. And he's always been one of my favorite musicians. And uh, one of the songs he wrote, uh, it's, it's really, well, it has a lot of meaning. But here's four lines out of it that uh, really tell us about this. You don't have to work so hard. You can rest easy. You don't have to doubt yourself. You're already mine. You don't have to hide your heart. I already love you. I hold it in mine. I'm sure we all have doubts. I'm sure we all have those times we, we say, I did it again. And I don't want to do it again. Uh, it's reassuring to know that God is looking at us going, you're still mine. I've still got you. If we believe that's true, that we've been changed enough so that we can really trust that we aren't who we used to be in God's eyes. He is in the midst of changing us. That he loves us on, his, on our worst day. That he delights in us. That frees us to love other people. That frees us to show people perfect courtesy, to show them every consideration. That's why we can be kind and gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people, because we were just like them. God's goodness and loving kindness appear to us, and we can show it to them. The rest of this passage shows us how he did that. How did he change us? Here's what it says. He changed us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Some scholars debate whether or not that's talking about water baptism and the washing of regeneration. Uh, And I think it's clear from the text, and because in the phrase before that it tells us that we weren't saved because of any work done by us in righteousness. Baptism is a work. So we weren't saved by baptism. Baptism, the act of baptism, does not save us. It's important. Uh, in that washing of rebirth, you know, we, we see ourselves uh, dramatizing what has happened to us. We died to ourselves when we were baptized into Christ, right? Going under the water symbolizes that, symbolizes our death. The washing of the water symbolizes this cleansing that has happened. Now God sees us as righteous, and we arise to new life, to eternal life in Christ. It's a symbol. Uh, It's a symbol a lot like this ring on my left hand. The ring doesn't make me anything. It merely tells you that I'm in a different relationship. I'm in a relationship with a person I've committed my life to. I've made a promise that I will do something And my relationship to that person has changed from what it was before that. That's what baptism says about us. It says, we are not the people we used to be. Our relationship to God has changed because of Jesus Christ. And now we can live that changed life. I hope hope that makes sense. And I tell you, it's, it's interesting to, to read back and to see what other people thought. Uh, the Stoics thought, you know, the Stoics are the folks who thought emotion was, well, they were Spocks <laughs> before Spock was Spock, right? <laughs> emotion wasn't important to them. Well, and, and they had this outlook on the world that someday it's going to all change. Uh, someday there's going to be what they call a cosmic regeneration. Everything is going to be made better. And... It's interesting to look at our culture and see how often we think that we can induce cosmic regeneration by doing things through our own strength. We use science and government and our own intelligence thinking that, yeah, if we just did these things, we could save humanity, save the world. Um, Unfortunately, we get sidetracked on that thinking that somehow we are in control and we leave God out of it. We all long for things to be right. Everybody in the world knows it's broken. If they're honest with themselves, we know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we even see creation groaning. Um, Jesus uses this regeneration word, rebirth, to refer to the renewal of all things which will happen at his return. There's going to be a cosmic regeneration. It's just not going to happen the way we think it's going to happen. God has a plan to make things right. Uh, His plan doesn't include letting mankind run the whole thing. Uh, He's going to be at work during it. And here's his plan. His plan is to regenerate one heart at a time, one person at a time, to incrementally bring about change until that culminates in Jesus coming back. It's awesome, isn't it? I mean, you think about it, 
we wouldn't have thought of that plan. We would get an army together, right? You've got to have millions of people, and we're going to go clean up everything. And No, God's going to do it one person at a time. His plan is for you and me to follow Jesus in a long and wandering path of trust and obedience, uh, showing perfect courtesy to all people. And that is what that's going to do is we all have the opportunity to show the goodness and loving kindness of God to other people. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our part in it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are each a new creation. And we're doing our part towards the rebirth of all things. We do that by loving God, loving other people. We had a broken heart. It wasn't working the way it was supposed to. And now God has rebirthed our heart and is renewing it by his Holy Spirit. That last phrase in the, uh, in the text we're looking at, says, it's really saying, why did God do this? Well, if you look at, uh, there's a so that there. So that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So why did he do it? So it could bring us into the family, right? It's important to see that being justified is not something that we're working towards or a goal that we have to achieve. It's something God did to us. He did that when he changed us, when he rebirthed us. Simultaneously with our salvation is our justification. Happened at the same time. He sees us through Jesus, who absorbed the cost of all the penalties that we incurred. We can't imagine how that, that it's so, right? Because we look in the mirror and go, yeah, I don't think I'm that good. But God doesn't see you. He sees Christ in you. He sees you changed. He sees you as you're going to be for eternity. He knows that you're in a growth process that is going to take all of your life, and he's not going to give up on you. Uh, and the second half of that sentence is also something has been done to you. We look at the word might. Notice in there it says, so you might become heirs. We look at that as a maybe, uh, but it's not a maybe here. What it's saying is you couldn't become an heir until you're justified. And becoming an heir was because you were justified, right? The two things go together. Our adoption was only possible through the righteousness of Christ. And now that we're part of the family, we have confidence that we will have eternal life. That hope is out there, and it's with us now. Some people say, we've already started eternal life. We just have this transition we have to make uh, when our physical life here ends. You know, we're members of this new family, and we got new expectations, and they're all summed up, I think, in that one phrase, uh, to show perfect courtesy towards all people in this passage. Uh, we have to be people lovers. We have to see that God is at work in those people. He is using us to contribute to that work in those people. If we're believers in Jesus, we trust that he lived the life we were supposed to live and couldn't do it. He died a death we deserved, and he now enables us to love others the way he loves us.
We are in this new family, the church, the body of Christ. We're all orphans adopted by God. And that came with expectations that the God who loves us could also give us a new heart that allows us to love other people. The overflow of his Holy Spirit, his love in us, is what does that. We are his plan to extend the family of God, the church. Now, the way we relate to authorities, to rulers, to all people, is going to open windows for them to see Christ. And we may not see that happening because uh, we are unaware lots of times how God is at work in other people, but it's happening. We are the ones who are going to help God's goodness and loving kindness keep on appearing in this world. Let me pray for us. God, you are, you are good. Your awesomeness in creating a plan that we would have never thought of, uh, it astounds us. We're so thankful, God, that we're a part of the plan, that we have the privilege of being your sons and daughters at work in your kingdom. Help us not to forget this. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.